0: Here we go, it's Monday night. Start getting excited. Time for Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a great show. Even more exciting because Ira's back in studio. Ira, so the uh, you know PGA Tour wrapped up their West Coast swing, and you wrapped up your West Coast swing too. You're back in South Florida. without
1: With a uh, red eye back, I, was, Genesis was over. Was Tiger Woods had, handed the trophy out and uh, got on a flight that night after that, watched the All-Star game and, uh, came back here to Florida. haven't slept in, uh, in, uh, I guess two days and walked the, the whole Genesis <laughs> golf course, but, uh, no, it's great. I mean, so I got the super bowl, saw Gonzaga play Pepperdine. So the number, number one college basketball team, I saw the super bowl and then saw Tiger Woods give it the trophy out for the Genesis, which is one of the biggest golf tournaments of the year. You were going to attempt
0: to make it back here for the Delray beach open, one of your favorite events. But I guess the leaderboard on Sunday just looked a little too good for you to head back.
1: on. Huh? Yeah. Because you think a columnar Calfee would have won, would have been number one in the world. Yeah. Um, there Justin Thomas was in the mix too it was looked like and I, and I was, it was it was good you know the tournament was usually has i was it's getting a lot of great pictures please go to ironsports.com these are some of my best pictures i've ever had in terms of going through looking at all the top golfers remember they had, I think, what, 45 of the top 50 golfers in the world were in this tournament. It's almost like a major-type field, so it's great to be there, and it was just easy to walk around, so I figured I'll stay there for Sunday, see what happens. I don't blame
0: you. I mean, Schauffele, Rory McElroy was at the top. Uh, Scheffler, who's coming off a win. Victor Hovland. It was definitely an exciting Sunday. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but, Ira, we've got a really big guest coming up right around 7.30. He's Chris Herring, a Sports Illustrated senior writer, and he wrote a
1: book that kind of encapsulated my childhood. <laughs> yeah, it's about the New York Knicks. We had Charles Oakley. I feel like we're the new york knicks type show <laughs> but just these books fell into our lap in terms of um these authors that wanted to come on so we had oakley two weeks ago now chris herring wrote this amazing book called the blood in the garden which just covers the knicks it's almost like the last dance about the bulls this is about the knicks and it's a great interview we taped it last week so uh, i'm excited to have him come on at the end of the show today
0: yeah we'll have chris on uh, right around 7 30 so Let's talk about it. Ira, congratulations to Joaquin Neiman. He goes wire to wire
1: at the Genesis. And this was a, a huge win for a a local guy. He actually lives here in Jupiter as well. Yeah, I mean, he shot a 63, 63, 68, 71, uh, 19 under. The tour record was Lanny Watkins, 85, was a 20 under at the Genesis. So he was ranked, Neiman was ranked the number one amateur uh, from 2017, 2018. But in the, you know, since he's turned pro, he's had one Greenbrier win. But in the majors, no top 20 in 11 times. But uh, certainly, this was the talent. I mean, he had some points in this tournament. He it looked he was going to go to thirty under because yeah. he had he was at like sixteen under and people were he had a ten stroke lead. Uh, actually, Cameron Young was getting close to him. But that was the other thing. Cameron Young was only in his twelfth golf tournament. Those two almost led wire to wire. We won two the entire <laughs> way. Um, but it was. It was, and this is one of those tournaments, there's no water there. So I've been there for Dustin Johnson when he ran away with it. JB Holmes, same thing. It's like if you get a lead and there's no wind, there was not windy at all, um, then at that point, you really, not like the Honda where you can get, you know, go double bogeys, those type of things. (laughs) And, uh, but it was fun at the end. The big thing was that Tiger gave the trophy. Tiger came down, it's his tournament, it's a tournament he sponsors. So he gave a speech. And then it was all whole thing with uh, the t- tiger was out for the on the eight, and it's, so the Riviera Country Club has the clubhouse, this historic clubhouse that overlooks the cliffs. Beautiful. It's a, it's a Riviera, and so the, the clubhouse is there. And then you go down, and there's uh, this whole bowl where all the fans are. It's really a great eighteenth uh, hole.
0: So let's talk about you actually getting there, and you know you brought up the Honda Classic, and one of the reasons we love the Honda so much is. It's so accessible. You can you can get in and out of there. Tickets are easy to get. This was not the experience you had at all. And you, this is not your first Genesis by any means. So you, you know more than the
1: average person. It's my eighth it's Genesis. Eighth Genesis and, and I couldn't believe on Saturday, I couldn't buy the tickets at all. Everything we want to do online. Now, Honda's doing the same thing. You have to pre-buy. I don't know why you can't go places and just buy it. Yeah. But anyway, it didn't work. I finally show up there on, on Saturday and said, so I'm having trouble buying Sunday's tickets. I go, oh, our ticket system's been down for a day. Well, considering your tournament's only four days long, <laughs> losing a day at selling tickets is bad. The other thing was i bought a clubhouse ticket because i was taking pictures and there's no wi-fi on the course i mean it's worse than three years ago so we haven't made any advances in wi-fi at all and i can't even send a text out let alone send pictures or anything so we go up to the clubhouse they threw people out it's three o'clock remember this ends like at three on saturday and sunday because they wanted to end at six in the east coast it's still light you know people could still have a fun time they start so early at ten o'clock in the morning They're pushing everyone out. There's an event, this and that. At the Honda, you can stay until four in the morning and party. They have uh, fireworks shows. They want you to stay. They want you to stay, (laughs) and that's one. That's one thing I said. Appreciate the Honda, because here's the genesis. This is the premier Southern California's event, and they don't want people to hang around. Like, get out, go move. And I did. I didn't like that aspect of it. And uh, certainly walk around the course. There's, there's no, there's no scoreboards. And I couldn't use the radio. You couldn't even find out from usually. There's no thing. I didn't know where Morikawa was. Neither do the players. There might be like six scoreboards on the whole course it's it's as it's such a big event. Like, get your act together. Like, Tiger Woods should know. I wish I could tell him. Like, you sell your tickets. Make sure your system is up and running. Because even I said this is not working. And then I go, aren't you guys upset? He goes, you probably are more upset than people. Our bosses are. You know, like they made that wow. comment. But be nicer to the people who bought these club outs tickets and are like wanted to hang out and do those things. I just, I just think there was a lot. Oh, you can't buy any merchandise. That it was impossible. They closed the merchandise. Like everyone's leaving and the merchandise stores are closed. Like it's that makes crazy. no sense. Nothing made sense. <laughs> like it's they should. Hire me as a consultant, maybe, on how to
0: run this thing. Iris been to so many golf tournaments. He could definitely give them. I can't believe no merch. I mean, the Honda is the only golf tournament I've ever been to. But they've got, like, a 5,000-square-foot tent full of merchandise. It's all AC. It's, like, so... At the, at, the me- ma-
1: at the majors, or the, the merchandise tents are bigger than, like, a hole. Like, they're probably 400 <laughs> yards. I mean, they have entrances both ways. You go by. People are spending $10,000 at those merchandise tents. And, and even the players go to the players uh, in Jacksonville. I, I don't understand. They had, they, but why would you close early when you have all these fans on the course?
0: Especially, you know, you mentioned
1: the um,
0: the upgraded tickets. Those are not cheap. No. Especially, Like, for someone like you... You want to walk the course. You want to follow players. There's no incentive almost to buy that if they're going to
1: close as soon as the tournament. No incentive. Ends. And I did find that I, you know, from there when they moved the first tee box is so beautiful because you're teeing from a cliff. So you're teeing off where the clubhouse is. And I've got the. I figured out where you could take a great picture. You had to go up to the second level of the clubhouse. Maybe it was illegal to be up there. I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> but I have some great pictures of them teeing because you can see them tee and the ball looks like it's flying because you're going right down. They have to run down the hill to start following them around.
0: It's Ira on Sports, true all these channels. I'm Mike Balsamo. As Ira mentioned, you can see all of his pictures all across social media at Ira on Sports. So, what we're going to focus primarily on Sunday, but what was your strategy here? for following people. You've always got to plan who you're going to follow. Sometimes you walk the course twice. So how'd you, how'd you do that? Well,
1: Friday I got there at 12. So I only did it like a once sort of walkthrough, but without tiger there and with a leader group, that wasn't that like in terms of, I need to get those pictures. I was just trying to get, see other golfers. Like I don't usually do this the whole way, but on Friday I really followed uh, JT, Cam Smith and Rom. They had some good groups and then uh Spieth, And I got a, uh, some of Bubba Watson. So I was able to take pictures and go through the, You follow it because when they have the three-on-three, some of the holes you can't get to the green or get to the tee box. So I was jumping back and forth between, and that was with my stool, everything, between those things. (laughs) Saturday, I followed Rory most of the day, a little of Spieth, Scott, and Morikawa, and then uh, Justin Thomas, uh and then the leaders team like neiman young and uh world Kim young and neiman and thomas were the leading group so i was able to jump between those groups when the groups were next to each other i got some really good pictures on those and it was really good on nine there was a great picture where you can sit down low and you get a picture that was is genesis invitational and you see the clubhouse and you see them tee off i love those pictures but you know i wish i could bring my camera but even with my cell phone it was still really cool i got some of the best pictures i've had from them uh who missed the cut I, you know but some golfers like i didn't see Brooks out there because he was the wrong time for me to see him. I, I missed Brooks. I missed Dustin Johnson. They both missed the cut. Patrick Reed missed the cut. Missed, missed the cut. Um, so some big names didn't, you know, Dustin's won this tournament, didn't make the cut. Did you happen to see, <laughs> I don't know if you did
0: because it was obviously on the TV coverage, Colin Morikawa, like walked in front of Justin Thomas as he was about to drive. He comes around the corner and doesn't realize JT's like set up over the ball, and he's walking right towards him, and Justin Thomas <laughs> looks over like, what are you doing? It, you you missed it. You gotta Google that when you get home. It was hilarious. Um, but Let's talk about Sunday. This was – it was an uphill battle for everyone that wasn't named Joaquin Neiman. It, I, I was never worried, but I guess when you have someone who is not an established winner on the, on the tour, you always have to worry a little bit. And
1: when they've got people like Colin Murakawa behind them, you can get a little nervous. Well, it was great. I mean, Hovland is in her early 20s. Victor Hovland from Playing Norway. Playing great, too. So he was 13 under. Young was 16. Cam Young was 16. And Neiman's 19. So he's a three-stroke over the second place, six over the third. You thought he was going to cruise. Young birdie the first hole to get to 17. And then Neiman on five and six, when he could have really ran away this, he missed a five-foot birdie, a six-foot birdie. And then uh, and then on 17, he finally birdied. So at seven, on seven, it got the closest it was. He was at 18. Cam Young was at uh, 17. So it was only one stroke on seven. But then on 88, everything turned. Neiman birdied, Young messed again a bogey. So it was a two-stroke, two-stroke swing, make it 1916. And then on 10, Young, Young birdied, uh, bogeyed again. But at that point, now I didn't see it, but you heard it. I mean, the when you hear sounds, that's when Morikawa chipped in yes. for an eagle. That was a big, that was huge. But then the place a, must have erupted. It, totally, but I was, you know, you can't. Yeah, they're two no holes score, away but from I, you. Yeah, but, but, but that only took him to 15. You texted me. Oh, if he was closer, that might have put pressure. But by that time, Neiman was at 19. They only put him within four strokes, heading mm-hmm. to the back nine. But when the Neiman shipped in on five for an eagle, so he at that point, he was at 20. You know he was at 21, and uh, and, and everyone else was. I mean, uh, was at Cam uh, Young and more coward at 15, back, yeah. six back. But you're thinking, okay, but it got so cold, like out of nowhere. And you saw, like, why are they wearing? They suddenly went from it was so hot in terms of putting almost a jackets on the hoodies. Jo- Justin Thomas was wearing a hoodie. It, the Temperature must have dropped 15 degrees like, out of nowhere. And uh, then on uh, 14, Neiman missed a, a, a easy putt, got a bogey that took him to 20, and then on 15. Uh, Bo- Neiman bogeyed again, and Young birdied. So that was 1917. But then it was so it was 1917, and then I knew Morikawa was at 17. But Morikawa was one stroke at one hole ahead. He's on 18, and I know so I know where he where Neiman is with Young, but I don't know where Morikawa is. And I heard on. 18, this eruption. So I thought he birdied it. So we're walking up it. Now I thought he only had a one stroke lead, but he actually had a two stroke as I saw on a board because he missed. He got, it was his drive that they were clapping for, yeah. but then he missed the 10 foot putt. So then Neiman just put p- uh, a part out, one, you know, it finishes at 19 under. Uh, and then was at 17 under. Morikawa wins that tournament. He passes Rahm. And is the uh, is the number one player in the world. So he fit, Neiman at 19, Young at 17, Morikawa at 17, Adam Scott at 14. Adam Scott plays this tournament well every year, 14 under. And JT was 13. Uh, Rory was 10th place at 10 under. And John Rom had a big Sunday, 65, but he still finished at 7 under 20, at 21. And Spieth. Started 66, 67, but then 73, 72, and did end it well. And this is what my one comment about Spieth is: it's impossible for me to get pictures of him. His backswing is never the same. Like Rory is the easiest person to take a picture. I can always know it's smooth. Speeth, there's it's his, He just stutters in his back, and it's not the same. And I'm like always missing. Like I'm always it's either getting him on the back or getting him on the front. But it's so uh-huh. hard. I can see why he sometimes has troubles. But Rory's swing is just amazing, and it's just. I just feel bad. Like, when you look at Roy, you're like, how is he not winning this tournament? Because he just has, it, when he does not putt, it, clearly he misses. Like, he'll make them good putts, but he misses so many easy putts. And that's why he finishes like 10th place and not like in the top leaders.
0: Um, You know, one good sign, Ricky Fowler played pretty good. He's going to be one of the bigger names at the uh, Honda Classic. And Matt Jones played played well. He's going to be uh, defending himself at the Honda Classic. So that's good going and into
1: And Neiman it. is going to be in the Honda Classic yes, coming they, off that way, I'm sure
0: Ken Kennerly and our crew is thrilled to see someone who committed, you know, win the prior week.
1: And Daniel Berger, who's coming off injury, we'll see how yeah. well he plays in that. So, I mean, I think that's the point is that coming to the Honda, we'll see some of those names of players. Like, could Fowler, as Fowler is playing better, is that going to help him in this tournament? I mean, they had... How about this? I live at Banyan K. They had 130 golfers today trying to go for four spots. It just shows you how great these golfers are. There's 130 really good golfers that are just playing for four spots to get in the Honda, which they'll be lucky to make. The, one of those and be able to make the cut. It shows you the level that these pro golfers are at. I didn't know they do
0: qualifiers at Banyan K. That's pr- pretty nice. Yeah. It's a nice
1: course, but I didn't know they did
0: that there. So you
1: want to talk about the Honda? Are you have any, anything left on the Genesis? Um, no, I will talk about the Honda. I'm just excited. This week we'll be there. Uh, you know, the, during the week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'll probably try to come out every day this last year they two years ago they had like 200 and some thousand fans there last year was only thirty thousand, so they're happy to have it back i'm interested to see we talked to ken kennerly with all these different structures you know as someone who follows and walks around i think the structures are you know nice but it's going to make it harder to walk because when you have the structures you can't get in to see it's going to be harder to follow the golfers uh, so I'll see how that how you know what works with that but the weather should be it's supposed to be 80 every day yeah. so sometimes they had this bad rainstorm so it'll be great i think the honda i think they're excited to remember it was like the last event before the pandemic and even two years ago it was sort of like the pandemic was there and then last year it was really very much you know tempered totally, and now they finally feel like they're back to normal.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we were talking um, before going on air, and you should probably bring this up for anyone who doesn't know. Like, it really does get hectic between 10, 11, 17, 18. Even 16 and 15 are really busy as, as the beginning of the bear trap. If you want to see
1: uninterrupted golf be able to move easily, the best place to do it is in the middle of the back nine. 12, 13, 14. You know those those three holes go all the way out, and usually nobody walks out there. So if you could want to walk out and just be, be closer to them, because I like nine, like eight, you can't see. Uh, the green nine or seven. You can't see the green and then eight, you can't see the, the tee shot. And then those greens are really crowded around there. Nine is a mess to see nine, yeah, nine from anywhere. Tough. Nine is hard from both ways and they supposedly put up more structures there. So that might even make it harder to look at those. Um, and so and then it's, it's hard. Even 18 is difficult because they, they've taken walking distance out. So that's why I think if you really want to see get close to the golfers, go to probably 12, 13, 14. Those will be the easiest holes to stand around the green, look at the tee box. Get close. I mean, look at these pictures from the Genesis. That was great. I mean, I'm there's points where I was like Neiman once. I was in front of him and he hit the ball and the grass went to my face. Like my, kid, <laughs> I was all full of his grass that he had. The divot that he brought up.
0: It was very cool. I, I don't know what to make of this this Saudi league. Whatever they're trying to
1: do here, but Phil Mickelson apparently came out in favor of it. Ira, I, I don't know what's going on anymore. I think Phil. The question is, is that. I thought the league would have a chance because the ideas are saying only 14, 15 tournaments. They can find these tournaments. There's no, the, the thing the PGA didn't have was the Tiger Woods. If Tiger Woods would say, I'm going to be a PGA, you could have Tiger, Tiger Woods could play with the people at Bay and Cave. It'll be the number one <laughs> event. But without Tiger playing, because he's injured, that that I think left an opening. But it seems like the golfers, they still have, the golfers are, are Bryson and Dustin, the two golfers that people thought were going to leave, said we're going to play the PGA Tour. But they can always change their mind. But now Phil's come out really strongly for this. Um, you know, cause I guess they're, you know, he's 50 years old. They're offering to pay him a hundred million dollars to do this, but he can't run this tour himself. So they, he needs these other golfers to be there. But the PJ tour, I mean, the point is that these golfers are saying, we only want to play three days a week, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we don't want 120 person fields. We don't have to play the whole, you know, all these things. They're trying to make it more fan friendly, but, uh, I, I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but it, it, it certainly this, it doesn't appear like it's going to happen. They thought they were going to start making an announcement this summer, but maybe not. We'll see on Sports True Aldi's channel at 717, right around 7:30. Uh,
0: Sports Illustrated senior writer Chris Herring will join us. So you took in a college basketball game as well, Ira. And this is one you you knew it was gonna be a little bit lopsided in the score booth. It actually wasn't even
1: that bad. Only a 20-point win for Gonzaga over Pepperdine. Only a 20-point win. But um, yeah, Gonzaga's ranked number one. They're actually unanimous number one this week. Um, I sat, I got a seat. How about this? I think I paid $50. I'm watching the number one college basketball team and I'm sitting right behind Mark Few. I'm in the third row. I was like an assistant coach. Like I felt like I was an assistant, like keeping stats for Mark Few. It was so cool to be behind the bench. The arena seats, 3000, everything is a bleacher seat. You're all in a bleacher, stuff like that. And it was, you walk in, it, it's like a high school gym. There's most high schools. Gyms are nicer than this one at Pepperdine, wow. but it was just cool to be there. Um, oh, and the mask rules. Uh, you felt like <laughs> this is, I think Pepperdine will be the last place. There'll be no mask for five years. Like they, had you sign everything, and then every time they announce the score, they go, "Here's the score. Remember to wear a mask. Remember to scream. Really? Remember a mask." But I got to see Chet Holmgren, their star freshman, who is seven foot two, and see how he can shoot the three and rebound at 18.17 rounds. Drew Timmy, who I got a picture with, he's the. Some people they think gonna be the player of the year this year. Um, The the Gonzaga has Julian Strothmore, who's a six seven sophomore sophomore forward and guard, Nemhart their point guard, and Rassier Bolton, the transfer from Iowa State, and then Hunter Salas, their freshman. I mean, they have a really good team. The weakness I saw from Gonzaga is they don't shoot threes well. They only shot four, made four threes in that game, and that could be one of the weak. They're more athletic, I think, than they were last year, even though they had Jalen Suggs. But um, they gotta shoot better. They didn't shoot as well. But it was fun to be at that. The arena was just so excited with the fans, and you're so close. And, you know, you go to all these pro games, and it's like 20,000-seat arena. It's so cool to see a top team in, like, a 3,000-seat arena. And I liked it. And after the game, the players are just talking, like, in the hall. Like, if you went to a high school basketball game, and the players came out, like, that's all they were doing. Like, the Gonzaga players, and you you don't see an NBA player, like, hanging out in the hallway talking to people. So it was really cool. And if you were coming up, and the Gonzaga players and Pepperdine were both giving pictures and everything. So I really enjoyed that game a lot.
0: So, Ira, you can uh, kind of. <laughs> we had a, a little bit of an incident with uh, Juwan Howard over the over the weekend, and it's just it's breaking news now that he's going to be suspended for the rest of the regular season. It's only five games, but uh,
1: Juwan Howard throwing a punch at an opposing coach never a good look. Well, I think this how this I, I've watched this. It was so shocking to me that I was watching the All Star game and the festivities. I love watching that halftime, and I missed the whole michael jordan thing because i started watching this and i was just like i couldn't believe because i how who watches more basketball than i have my entire life nobody i've never <laughs> seen this i've never i've seen players fight in the line but <laughs> what happened in the game was and and i i have to say at this point is that i'm sick of when you say oh i don't want people to call timeouts in the game well there was wisconsin was leading by uh 14 points there was a few like a minute to go in the game and they were and michigan was still pressing so they were still pressing. Wisconsin had their reserves and walk-ons, actually walk-ons on the game. They, one guy lost his shoe. He was out there without a shoe. So the Wisconsin coach called a timeout because you're pressing. You know, I'm going to call a timeout. Well, John Howard took offense to that, and everyone's saying, well, that's not proper procedure, this and that. Well, don't press. Pressing is not proper procedure when you're down 14 and you concede the game. Let the other team go up, shoot the shot. Why are you pressing? You have starters in the game pressing against walk-ons. So he's upset about that. So they start the receiving line, and then he goes. He waited, waited, waited. Then he starts to go. And then he then he went in the receiving line. And then the co- great guard, as a coach of Wisconsin, grabbed or, or grabbed a hold of, of Howard and tried to explain, you know, what he did, which is wrong too. So I mean, Guard was definitely fired up himself. And then Howard, they start pushing and shoving. Then they were separated. And I, I thought that was it. But then as Howard separated, to throw a punch at another coach, and then it's open fisted, close who he's seven feet tall. Yeah, it's a <clears> punch. <throat> UFC guys knock people out throwing punches like that. And so I am surprised that it was five games. I thought it would be. Perhaps the rest of the season and, and for the postseason. But, and then when they were holding Howard back with police officers, you don't want to see your coach being held back. You want to see the coach using police hold, maybe holding players. You don't want to see anybody held them back. I thought that was a, a wrong look. And then the other thing was Howard last year with Mark Turgeon with Maryland had a same incident where he's yelling and screaming. During the game, he was like, they were fighting and yelling at each other. Both coaches were reprimanded for the game. So now this is his second incident. Um, I don't know. Like I think a, a situation is that uh, I I probably thought he was going to be suspended at least for the Big Ten tournament, you know, and the five regular season games. They're on the bubble to even make the NCAA tournament, but it, it was it's a bad look. I, the more I've, I've seen it a million times today, and I I was just shocked. I, I just I don't remember. I remember when John Cheney. Mark John Calipari was giving a press conference like must be thirty years ago when he was like a young coach and Cheney walked in the press conference and started yelling at him, Coach at Temple <laughs> and was screaming at him, so, "I'm going to kill you!" But he didn't physically assault him; they just were screaming at each other. But short of that, I don't ever remember coaches ever fighting, you know, football or basketball.
0: No, like, it's, it's like unheard of. That's why I did think, you know, for being unprecedented, I thought we were going to see an unprecedented immediate firing, but apparently not. I, I don't know if they'll stay with him after the season, but uh, really weird stuff over the weekend. Not expecting that. Uh, especially from Juwan Howard. So, really big guest next week, Ira, and it ties into college basketball.
1: Well, um, Co- Ian O'Connor wrote uh, the definitive book on Coach K. It's coming out this week. We're going to have him on next week's show. I read three-quarters of the book. It's amazing. It brings the whole idea about how John Shire was the successor. You hear in the news about this set of Tom, Tommy Amaker. Breaks down a great story. I'm so excited to have Ian on the show. He's a phenomenal writer for in New York for the Daily News, and so it's great to have him on there. I also want to say Duke has... At Virginia, at Syracuse, at Pitt. And then they have a home game against North Carolina. This is Coach K's last home game at Cameron Indoor Stadium. The ticket... The cheapest ticket is almost four thousand dollars just Crazy. to go in. That is Super Bowl level quality yeah. of tickets in terms of going in, and it's not even his last game because he's going to play the ACC tournament. <laughs> it's not the last game; it's his last game at Cameron, but it's not the last game that he's ever going to coach. But I think that's the the excitement. All my friends are talking about how this is like the hottest ticket in the history of college basketball, and you, you're going to try to go. No, no, <laughs> that's I, that's ridiculous. That is that is
0: ridiculous. Uh, just about seven or eight minutes here until we have to get to Chris Herring. Let's talk a little NFL. So you were in la for the parade ira and you were one of the millions of people who didn't attend no I, I was in la after
1: the game but it's so funny is that after this super bowl was over it's like if kansas city would win the super bowl think if cincinnati would have won the super bowl they'd be like, celebrating now The parties would so we go in la they had they couldn't hold it at staples <laughs> because the lakers were playing they couldn't hold it at the coliseum because there was a, a car race that was in the clash they couldn't hold it at SoFi because they were breaking it down so they held it like Outside between SoFi and the Coliseum, nobody showed up. They had a few thousand fans. And then it was just a joke in terms of, like, nobody cared. And then around town, you don't get the sense. I said in last week's show, I want to see how this does for the Rams. And it, it just, it, it's nice that they won, but it, certainly L.A. has a feeling that it's just, you know, it's there's so many other things where if this was anything else, it would be huge. I mean, if this was Cincinnati had won that Super Bowl, this would have been, they would, yeah, they'd again, party they have four parades. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> It'd be Joe Burrow Day today. <laughs> Give them the key to the city. Um, You know, I personally thought Brian Flores might be out of the league after, you know, drumming up numerous uh, lawsuits against
1: uh, the league itself and coaches. But he's back and he's with your Pittsburgh Steelers. I was I was shocked by it, but I really shouldn't have been. I know he has a relationship with he's Mike Tomlin. He's a good coach and they brought him in. Now, the question is, he didn't supposedly get along with Minka Fitzpatrick and he's going to be coaching Minka because he's going to be a secondary coach. A secondary linebackers. He plays that that area. You know, it, it is. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of Flores being there and also they'll be playing teams that he's suing. But he's not a coordinator. He's going to just be a position coach. Um, But I think there's another – the next step is that Flores supposedly has a good relationship with Deshaun Watson. And that's what people have talked about is that that he didn't like Tua because he wanted them to make the trade for Watson and was frustrated that Chris Greer didn't make that trade. So I could not imagine that the Steelers would trade for Deshaun Watson. But remember the Steelers are saying, well, they don't want controversy. They brought Michael Vick in. Michael Vick was a quarterback on the Steelers, which is so – they, I think that there is, if you know, could you imagine Deshaun Watson on the Steelers? I just don't think they would ever trade, like, three first-round draft picks and, all the other, and, and pay Deshaun Watson as one of the highest-paid players in the league do. I don't know about that, but it would be interesting if, because Floor, they brought Flores in. Would that make Deshaun put Steelers? Is that something that could happen?
0: So, Ira, we seem to be the only people in the world who don't think college football playoffs should expand. Everyone thinks they should be playing 12 teams, which is ridiculous, but we know for at least a couple years, four teams is locked in.
1: It is for four years, and I, you and I are the only ones. I remember I would always said I want more, but it seemed like there's a dispute, debate between that. All these conferences cannot get together, decide. They thought it was going to be 12, but now for the next four years, everybody has their own agenda, and they couldn't come They couldn't come to Zoom meeting of the mind. So for four years, we're going to have four, and I think it should be that way. I like it for – I think it's too much to play more. They already, to me, the conference championship games are – it's a, except last year with Georgia-Alabama, but they are really the another round of the playoffs anyway, for most yeah. teams. So I, I think it's fine at four. I don't want to see, I don't want to cheapen this regular season that I think is the greatest regular season in all of
0: sports. Let's talk about uh, Daytona 500.
1: We have a rookie winner of the Daytona 500. Austin Sindrich, who is interesting that he's 23 years old. is only his eighth start of the race. So you have Joaquin Neiman, who's 23, and Austin Sindrich is 23, and but his father was the president of Team Penske. So he's he's driving for So he's Know, Roger Pensky's known him forever, and is someone who people thought would would come and rot, take this. He took over Brad Kozlowski's car. I mean, everybody was wrecking. I didn't see the race, but I you know certainly heard everything about it. And Larson Lott, got knocked, the pole sitter got knocked out early. Hamlin got knocked out early, and uh, so it's it's but he just barely beat Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace now has finished second in the Daytona twice, so that was uh, we'll see. Now it's weird, you know, NASCAR runs their Super Bowl, and then they have 35 other races. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> I've always thought that was a little strange, but go ahead and kick off the season. And what about Formula One? Oh, I just, I wanted to say this point. You know how much I feel that Lewis Hamilton got totally robbed. The guy who made that decision about letting Max, Matthew Verstappen uh, uh, start with the fresh tires and manipulate that whole last lap, which totally was ridiculous, that he was fired. So he was the race director who made that call. And I was just waiting. He should have been fired like months ago, but finally he's been fired. Not going to be a race director anymore because it was totally a fixed race. And I, I think they should have given Lewis the cha- the championship. But that's at least he was fired, and at least they recognize it was a wrong call. Baseball owners and the baseball players are in Jupiter right now,
0: Ira, trying to work out their differences. I don't have that much faith in it What are they doing in Jupiter? What are what's
1: going on there? Where are they? Roger where are they? Dean is where they're doing <laughs> the meetings. But um, no, it it we look. I don't want to go into details. It's so boring in terms of for most people. But the idea is that the players want people to be free agent when they're younger. When they're they want to they don't want to wait six years to become a free agent. It's all about this because the owners are 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 making the players you know wait, and they're not signing the older players so that people want to get to their free agency when they're their early twenties or mid actually mid twenties. They don't want to wait till they're thirty years old because then if they're thirty, they're not going to get the ten year. $400 million contract, and the wages have gone down over the years. It's the players' fault. We've talked about this again and again. When the Pirates are spending $30 million and the Orioles are spending $30 million, there's no floor. You don't have this in the NFL, the NBA. Everybody spends the same amount of money, not in the baseball. So but it's the players who don't want a salary cap. If you, if you want a cap, you got to have a floor. But, but letting these teams not spend any money, that's the problem.
0: Yeah, no, it's hurting sports for sure. And I'm, I'm sure they're discussing that as well because I know – me and you want a floor badly as as well. Uh, really, so the baseball compete. fans do. Make
1: the pirates compete. Yeah. You,
0: so you got to spend eighty million. Like stop with these $25, $30 dollars uh, teams. So you think I can go back and get the money? I. Placed on Mandaloon to win the kentucky derby <laughs> two years ago probably not but uh, medina spirit has been stripped of his kentucky derby win
1: my friend johnny hates when i we cover like a million sports but there's been so much to talk about yes but the the, the kentucky derby for 2022 is a few is a month or two month and a half away but for 2021 now there's a new winner mandolin has been rewarded the win over medina spirit because who's now who's passed away who died yeah. so it's not they even took the title away from Medina spirit, but it was only the first, actually the third disqualification mm-hmm. uh, in the history of the Kentucky Derby, maximum security two years ago because of bumping, and 1968 dancers' image was also suspended because of drugs, but they, and Bob Baffert, I, I saw that Bob Baffert was, got what a $7,500 fine. That was oh, yeah. <laughs> really gonna hurt. Um.
0: The Delray Tennis uh, Open, you didn't get to go this year. It's one of your favorite things, but maybe this show has grown the popularity. <laughs> it is there best-selling uh, Delray Open yet? I love the Delray
1: Open. I feel terrible I didn't go. I can't be in, like, Florida. I was either Daytona, All-Star Game, Genesis, but Cameron Norrie beat Riley Opeka. And I think what makes this tournament so great is that so many young Americans, it was full of—, of but Taylor Fritz, you got to see these great young Americans that are coming. I just feel bad that it's the same week as the Genesis. It's now that, you know, they moved, They last year it was a different time. They moved it back to its normal schedule. But it's a great tournament, and maybe next year I'll try to catch at least a couple of
0: days of that. Two minutes or so till we bring on Chris Herring, uh, C, uh, Sports Illustrated senior writer. Let's talk about the NBA. It was their all-star weekend, and I, I really think that they're losing fandom and viewership on these skills competitions, Ira, by not having the best of the best out there.
1: People ask what you should do with a dunk contest. What could they do? Well, if you had the best players, Obi Toppin from the Knicks won. <laughs> I mean, Obi Toppin doesn't start for the Knicks. I mean, you have backups on teams. He's like the ninth the, guy. Right. Yeah. So it, it's like pointless. And it's stupid. If, you, if you're not starting, maybe the rules should be if you're not starting for an NBA team, don't be in the dunk contest. And three point was a little exciting with, with Carl Anthony Towns. But the point is the dunk contest is a, is a waste. And the reason it's a waste is then say, oh, the dunks are hard. It's because you don't have the star players. If the star players were doing the dunks, and also don't let them miss, don't have them five tries yeah. to make a dunk. It's ludicrous for the for the. It's, to watch Miss Dunk after Miss Dunk. That the Friday night used to be the big event. No longer. Yeah, is that Nate Robinson missing twenty in a
0: row. to yeah. you know to get one. It's <laughs> a little ridiculous.
1: Let's talk about the game. I thought it was more competitive than it's been in the past. Um, Steph Curry scored 50 points, 16 threes, and I think the third quarter he was awesome. And I love the fourth quarter where they said the first two score, and I think the teams actually played. There was all the 75 best players in attendance—not all 75, but I think 45 of them were. I think the players did play for that final quarter. I love that final quarter; it was exciting. And LeBron hits the game-winning shot in Cleveland. Uh, all those things. So you had that aspect of that in terms of, when they call game-winning, they had to a number. You played to a number. You had to score like 163 points when he had 163, then the game was over. But they were both going back and forth on that. And Curry was missing some threes. He's the MVP of the game. But, you know, I think he scores 50 points in an All-Star game. is crazy. <laughs> but uh, I, I thought, actually, this was probably one of the better ending of an All-Star game. And, and now, for, because I think because of what they've done with the Elam ending, who we've had on our show, Nick Elam, they, won't, they don't give him credit for that. But it was no. his idea. And they don't give him credit for it. Let the guy get credit for the ending.
0: And you it's know? a great ending. He's yeah. a really smart guy. It, LeBron is Very polarizing, I would say, for lack of a better term. He doesn't really do anything wrong. He's a good family man. But he has a
1: way of really rubbing people the wrong way, and that's more of what I
0: get from this this situation that's popping up.
1: Well, LeBron started talking a lot. what he's, First of all, he's been taking shots at the GM, Palenka, Rob Palenka, saying he's weighing that, that, he said who the MVP of the league should be Sam Presti for the Oklahoma City Thunder because he has great draft picks. Now, who would say that? But you have a yeah. GM on your team. Then he's criticizing, he wore a shirt that said, uh, to forget the draft picks or something, forget the draft. He wanted to sign free agents. But it's like he signed Russell Westbrook. They brought all his friends, Dwight Howard, D'Andre Jordan, these are all his buddies. This is what he wanted. He wanted. It didn't work out. And now he's blaming the GM for what he put together. They could have had DeMar DeRozan, who looked great in this game. DeMar DeRozan goes to Chicago. DeMar DeRozan wanted to play for the Lakers. They didn't want DeMar DeRozan. They didn't want Buddy Heald. This is LeBron's choice. So LeBron got his team that he wanted. It's not winning. He's blaming everyone else. It's your fault. I mean, LeBron's a great player, but he's been a terrible GM lately. And uh, so, and then the next point he made was he goes, I want to play my last season. I want to play with my son." But don't. But he then he's looking to go out of L. A. He goes, oh, I could be anywhere. Well, don't say that. You're playing for the Lakers. Like the, if you're, I'm telling you, walking around talking to Laker fans, it's they're just frustrated with him. I mean, nationally, it's like, oh, it's a great story. Wants to play with Son. It's like, why? we are our player. Like play, you know, play with the Lakers. You said you wanted to come here, build, bring us a championship. And I think this cheapens a little. I, not cheapens, but that championship that they won in the bubble i said oh it'll be a championship people do not give them credit for that i think these bubble wins even the dodger win it's sort of like yeah it doesn't yeah. really it's like a three quarters of a championship and because then when he came and he said we should have a parade so the rams had a parade and lebron goes we should be invited to the parade too and The <laughs> dodger, like wait that was two years ago you won the championship that was not the last year the bucks won so he wants a the parade there's like one you're the only player he went anthony Davis only two players on the team <laughs> Such a joke. so i thought that was i don't think he really helped himself with all the talking well, Go to Chris Herring, it's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports, 95.9106.9 9, West Palm Beach. We're honored to have a sports illustrated writer, basketball writer Chris Herring on, who just wrote the book called The uh, Flagrant History of the 1990s New York Knicks Blood in the Garden. Chris, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports.
2: Oh, I appreciate it, I, Thank you.
1: So you touched on a topic, and I was interested in the book, you said people talk about the Knicks all the time, that period of time in the 90s, but there's never been a book written on it, and it had such an interesting cast of characters with Riley as a coach and Mason and Ewing, and it, it was something that I guess it drew your attention to write about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, to me, I think, you know, especially in the last year or two years, uh, disproportionately so, I think, the teams that win and win the whole thing get a lot of attention. Um, you know, we all got a chance to at least watch the the Jordan documentary that was 10 parts. Um, since then, <laughs> ESPN has since come out with, you know, a Tom Brady, you know, kind of retrospective in terms of his career. Uh, Derek Jeter, one, is on the way. Uh, so, we you know, it's still a point now where I think, you know, after the Jordan success, we're, we're just kind of getting used to this. is something that's going to happen. There's going to be an HBO series on the 80s Lakers pretty soon. So we get more sometimes even than we ask for with regards to hearing about the winners and the, the people that dominate an era. Um, but meanwhile, I think there's kind of a, a fascination that maybe is underplayed a little bit about the teams that don't quite win, but really influence the way things will work afterwards. And so, you know, I think the most watched 30 for 30 to this day is still the the Fab Five documentary. They did not win a title. But I also think that they were fascinating in terms of the personalities as far as what they would usher in culturally. And I think the Knicks are a little bit closer to that. I think they had some fascinating personalities between Pat Riley and Anthony Mason. Um, they had, obviously, some kind of legendary battles with the Bulls, uh, with the Pacers, with the Heat, and you know maybe the most fire, fiery rivalry of all against the Heat in the late 90s. Um, but also, even if you take those things off the table, they were always involved in moments that kind of were culturally important, from the O.J. chase uh, to the stuff that we're talking about with Reggie and Spike Lee, um, and I think more than that. And this is what I think is more important: they, they were not the team of that era, but I think that they were probably the team that would go on to dictate more about the game would be the way the game would be played in the future. Um, and you know, I don't think that we would have. Today's NBA would have gotten today's NBA as quickly as we did with this much skill and this much athleticism without those Knicks because the league wanted to run away as fast as it could from the way the Knicks played basketball. And so I think the Knicks are, are just as important, really, as any team, you know, maybe outside of the Bulls. But I think that they changed more about the way the game would be played than the Bulls did even from those years
1: and the architect of this was Pat Riley. You mentioned in the book that there was about 10, 15 years where the Knicks were almost irrelevant, except for when Batito was the coach. And Dave Checkitz was hired as general manager. And they bring Riley in, who's known for showtime with the Lakers. And my real quick little story on this is that you mentioned he was hired at the Regency Hotel one day where Checkets met with him. And that same day, I was having, I was a first year, I was a summer associate at a law firm, sort of, and we were having a breakfast with one of the partners. And I remember I went to the bathroom and Riley and I were both there. And I was nervous because I'm meeting with a partner and I'm trying to get a job. And I guess Riley wasn't as nervous as I was, but it was just, we stood there for like, I was like three minutes. And then I was like wondering, and the next day was later, you know, said that day that Riley was hired as the, the coach. And I knew that it was discussion. Oh, wow. And I remember I went back to the table when everyone was sort of weird. This partner was very standoffish and someone said his, how are you liking New York? And I said, I just ran into Pat Riley in the bathroom and I think he might come to the Knicks. And my colleagues were all looking at me strange. And the partner loved the Knicks and he was just started talking to me and engaging. And I was like, wow, that was a good thing to say. But sorry for that detour. But the point no, is... No,
2: it's fascinating.
1: <laughs> but that is the idea of bringing Riley with showtime. But the Riley that came to the Knicks was not the Riley we saw from the Lakers. It's completely different in terms of style of game.
2: Well, I I think the emphasis was certainly different. It's funny. I think there's maybe almost too much credit given in terms of just changing his style because I think at his core, I think Pat Riley was a little bit of a chameleon from the standpoint that um, the Lakers were just a team that had so much offensive talent and had so much skill as far as getting the, the ball up and down the floor with Magic Johnson and the passing that existed on the roster, scoring that existed then of course he was going to emphasize that. And and really what the players were looking at, if you look at kind of what happened with, with Paul Westhead, they were a team that had started to get frustrated with the fact that they had all this skill on offense and just wanted to kind of play a rip-and-run sort of style of offense, and Paul Westhead was trying to change that. And so the players were kind of frustrated with the idea that they had a, a coach that wouldn't just really let them play but was trying to structure them. And so Pat Riley just kind of let them do that. Um, and he built in stuff defensively. Now, he was a tough-minded coach on defense. Um, my book agent and my book editor at one point were kind of wrestling with me, trying to get me to title the book No Layups Allowed, and I <laughs> wouldn't do that. And the reason I wouldn't do it is because Riley used that phrase first with the Lakers. So I think he had a pretty nasty sort of streak there, too. I just think that more we heard way more about their offense. In LA, But to your point, yes, I mean, he certainly emphasized the defensive stuff more with the Knicks. He looked at the roster and basically said there's no way we could replicate Showtime here. We don't have enough ball handlers. We have a center that does not have great knees. Um, we're not going to be able to run up and down the floor like that, but we do have a lot of big bodies and a lot of guys that could be physical or that we could at least train to be more physical and to have more of an edge to them to kind of intimidate opposing teams. And that was what they did, and I think that was what really influenced the sport to change uh, after a few years.
1: And the star of the team was, of course, Patrick Ewing, probably one of the most misunderstood superstars ever. I mean, to think in from the fabric of being at Georgetown and, and all everything he did in the titles he won in Georgetown and the finals that he lost in Georgetown, and then being in the Knicks in the center of the whole media attention – uh, in terms of being in New York and, and his failures and inability to win the title. But you mentioned in the book that he was beloved by his teammates, that that he, they felt he was the most loyal person, they loved him, and that just a completely like misunderstood type person in terms of uh, Patrick Ewing.
2: Yeah. I mean, he's someone that – and you've heard that for years, that the teammates loved him. You know, everybody maybe outside of Anthony Mason who – really could never understand or really get with the idea that Patrick didn't like to sign autographs, particularly for children. Um, That really bothered Mace. But aside from that, I mean, he was a guy that um, quietly was going to have your back that, you know, during the off season was going to pay for the whole team to come out to Jamaica um, and and spend time with him to see where he grew up and just to kind of get away from the media glare of New York city. He was a guy that, you know, when your wife has brain cancer, that Patrick is going to foot the bill for the whole treatment, for the whole surgery, whatever is needed, uh, six figures or more, was going to do that. Um, was a guy that, that had a fun side to him, that <laughs> despite being the highest-paid player in the NBA, the highest-paid player in sports a couple of times, that was the case during the 90s, um, particularly when Jordan was out of the game, he was going to buy lottery tickets every day. <laughs> Just a, a really different sort of guy. Um you know, but the team, even even when he kind of set himself off from the rest of the team, which he did sometimes because he was very private, um, the teammates just counted it as such a win when they could get Patrick to kind of come out with them. And uh, someone gave me an anecdote about the idea that they went out one night after I think it was maybe a win over the Lakers and decided to go out and just have a night out. You know, where the guys were out until three in the morning and they went to a dance club and just like how much fun that was for them because Patrick was there. Uh, I don't know. I think we all have had that experience where there's someone that doesn't make the time or can't always make the time. But then when they do with the rest of your friends, it just kind of livens the night that much more. And it feels like such a um, because it's something that doesn't happen very often. It's just so much more of a win at that point. So Patrick was someone that his teammates really, really grew to love. Um, And, you know, the, the, the divisions that happened later in the late 90s, I think, were kind of more due to talk radio and more due to the, the amplified notion of the idea of, like, was Patrick aging to a point where he was still taking on too big a role in the offense? Um, and I do think eventually you started to have guys, like, I don't think Latrell Sprewell was worried about Patrick's legacy and the way that, you know, how does a star player kind of step out of the limelight or start to kind of relinquish some of the power um, and the power dynamic within the offense. I think over time, as the teammates started to change, some of that started to fade um, as far as it being so important to everyone else, but during those Starks Oakley days and stuff like that, I mean Ewing was just beloved by everybody in that locker room.
1: And then the two players, two of the core players, are Anthony Mason and John Starks. And talk about a backgrounds. I mean, we we notice about you know this is a five-star athlete. They've gone in this camp AAU. I mean, Mason was traveled like how many countries was he before he made the NBA and John Starks was in how many colleges bouncing around? I mean, like six or seven colleges getting just transferring and transferring and your story about him getting uh, married and then playing in front of Kansas and scoring 25 points in half. I mean, all these stories about these two uh, uh, players that would you know form the core of the Knicks and take this team to the finals and have the best records in the league were just totally overlooked for most of their time in, in basketball.
2: Yeah. I mean, those two were, you know, just to me were probably the biggest characters on that team. I know Oakley was someone that enjoyed his gambling and everything, but I think Starks and and Mason, you know, were, were almost more interesting to me because of the fact that they had so little basketball experience, high level basketball experience. Really, I would say up until, up until they basically made the pros or at least started playing professionally elsewhere, um, Starks is a guy that played one year, really, of high school basketball. I don't even know if it was the varsity team or not. Uh, You know, couldn't really afford to play a sport because he, you know, his family was so poor that they needed him to work and um, played at four different colleges, three of which were community colleges. um, Backed groceries at Safeway. So he's got a little bit of the Kurt Warner story attached to him um, for $3.35 an hour. uh, He started at when he took the job there. And, you know, I kind of tie this to all that explanation. Um, There were moments where people couldn't understand why he'd keep shooting and, like, why, you know, he maybe didn't have the highest on-court IQ. He really never played organized basketball in, like, one place for more than a year with one coach for more than a year Um, until, again, he got to the pros. And even then, he was bouncing around from one league to the next. Um, So until he made it to the Knicks and stuck there, I want to say that might have been really the only time he played basketball for two consecutive years anywhere, um, really for the first time in his career, which is like a crazy thing to say. Um, most people do that to accomplish that by high school or maybe junior high. So um, so he's fascinating from that standpoint to me, um, not to mention just how hot and cold he runs or kind of the, the butting heads literally with Reggie Miller or what have you. But then Mason. I mean, Mason was a guy that didn't start playing until late in high school either. Um, and was a guy that was really, really wound tightly that, you know, probably bubbled over a little bit too much, certainly for Pat Riley's liking at times that had all the confidence in the world that (laughs) someone told him to pass the ball. He'd swear at them and, uh, you know, and say that he was a better ball handler than they were anyway. Um, and was a guy that basically thought that the offense should run through him and and found a coach that would agree with him on that. Uh, And Don Nelson later on and let him handle the ball as a point forward, but also was just, you know, always thought he should be on the floor, essentially had a a great stamina, an on-court stamina, uh, led the league in minutes one year, but even with that being the case, essentially issued a written death threat to Don Uh Nelson, um, saying that if you take me out of a game, I'll kill you. If you do that again, I'll kill you. Um, and a death threat, and a written death threat while Don Nelson was speaking to the media after a game against the Kings. Um, but here's the important thing to keep in mind <laughs> and the context behind that. At night, I'm pretty sure Mason played 38 minutes in a game that he didn't even play particularly well. Um, but also, Anthony Mason was leading the league <laughs> in minutes at that point, so nothing was really good enough for him. And, uh, you know, he was just a guy, you know. The team was full of guys that I would say, aside from Ewing and maybe a couple other guys, that were wound a little bit too tightly. Uh, that just their emotions bubbled over all the time at the drop of a hat, and I think Mason was at the top of that list. Starks was not far behind them.
1: And then you know, and people think Riley Riley was only there four years, and his first two years, uh, the were against were stopped by Jordan, and and they, they almost in ninety two ninety three. I mean, clearly that was the Charles Smith year. I mean, I remember where I was. It was in Atlanta at a bar and I was trying to get someone to turn the Braves game to the Padres game in order to watch that game when the Knicks had a chance to go up in that series and Charles Smith missed four shots for for the basket. But it was really this this, uh, the idea, and this is when you talk about changing the game. I mean, the fact that Stern said, Look, they're beating up Jordan, they're knocking him down, they're, 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 they're not letting the game be free flowing. That's why we see players today, even just like the Alex Caruso foul that, uh, Grayson Allen had. You know, back in those days, that would have been a normal foul that Allen's foul on Caruso just happened this past week. Uh, they's now, but now it's like, Oh, Allen should be suspended, the games, all those things like that. But I really think it was that, that whole battle with Jordan in those first two years, in the six game series and a seven game series that really captivated the nation.
2: No, I think you're totally right. And I think, you know, I've I've thought plenty and seen a replay of that play plenty. Um, Someone, I was actually on a Sixers podcast a couple of days ago, and it was interesting because um, the podcaster was trying to get me to agree with him, you know, based on the research I've done, all the interviews I've done for the book to say don't you think people have gotten, you know, like based on, you know, how fun that era was and how much people love those teams and that Knicks team in particular, you know, don't you think people get a little bit weird about hard fouls now? Like we should have more of them in the game. And I, I essentially told him, no, like he wanted me to agree with them. I said, no. Um, and I was thinking about the Caruso foul in particular. I basically said, you, you know, even a lot of those Nick players, like Doc Rivers is a very, very good example. Doc was the first one to complain about the rules in the moment. Um, and call them anti nick rules. But he's also the first one to say, man, I'm really happy they changed them because the game <laughs> had to change. And, you know, essentially that Caruso foul is exactly what I think about is that, you know, one other thing that's not really mentioned much, the changes between 1991 and 2022, these guys make a lot more money. Um, and you can't have guys out for 8, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, a whole season because someone just decides to make a really dangerous play. Um... It's just you know, it's, it's there's there's something to be said for a hard foul when you're just kind of shoving someone and they're running. Between that and hitting someone when they're in the air, and I mean you don't even have to hit someone when they're in there. You can kind of just push them and shove them a little bit or just kind of touch them. Um, and quite frankly, that's how Patrick Ewing shattered his wrist, uh, by the way, in 1998 was a play like that. In 1997 was a play like that. So. Um, it doesn't take much, and also you can't really take it back once it happens. Uh, So it's it's just, there's not really a place in today's game for that, but quite frankly, you know, that happened at times with the Knicks during the 90s, when we talk about Ewing, Starks had a foul on Kenny Anderson, where he broke his wrist um, on a foul where Kenny was up in the air. It it doesn't seem like much, it didn't seem like much back then, but um, you don't have the control of really how hurt these guys get when they're up in the air like that, so Thank goodness the game has changed. I mean, I think we all wish that there was a little bit more animosity in the game, but if there are ways to do that without it being literally dangerous for guys, I would prefer that. And, um, you know, it it doesn't take much for something to be dangerous. These guys are so athletic now. And because there's not constant pushing and shoving and hand-checking, there's a lot more space involved, a lot more space and a lot more athleticism and speed. The guys jump higher that leaves a lot more room for danger when, when these guys actually do collide with each other, and so uh, I know for me, I'm grateful that uh, that you know that the rules are a little bit different to kind of discourage some of that stuff, and um, I'm, I'm happy the game is at least different from what it was back then. The same way Doc is.
1: Uh, we're talking to Chris Herring, author of the book "The Blood in the Garden," about the '90s Knicks. You have so many great little stories in this book. If you just tell the story about Pat Riley before the 93-94 season when he was in Maui, and uh, I just liked when in terms of his hotel room, it's just a great story. I I reread it like three times. It was so funny.
2: Yeah. Well, Pat makes a decision. You referenced a minute ago um, the Charles Smith play that still kind of lives in infamy for Knicks fans in 1993. So at the end of that season, um, you know, Pat, After a long season, the the way I think most people would want to go on vacation, he takes his family to Hawaii um, and is there. You know, it's Pat Riley. So, of course, he can afford the nicest accommodations they have. He gets the presidential suite. And upon being there, um, you know, maybe a couple of days into the trip is called and told by the front desk staff. You know, Mr. Riley, we're so, so sorry. Uh, We wanted to try to get in touch with you because uh, something really important has come up we need to clear your room and uh, we need to move you to the second nicest accommodation we have. We're so sorry. This never happened. Um, we really apologize. And you know, Pat, again, with the ability to afford the nicest room, you normally kind of are afforded the idea of not having to be asked to bolt your room uh, on short notice for anything. Really? Uh, you, you pay for the right to not have to have that happen. So he's trying to figure out what it is. He's asking, is there any way around it? They're saying, no, so there really isn't. We're really sorry. Um, so, Pat, you know, what choice does he have? He leaves the room. You know, the people from the front desk have said that they will move all his luggage, and all his family's luggage for the trouble, and they'll take care of it. Uh, maybe you can just kind of go down and enjoy the ocean for a little bit, or maybe enjoy the pool with your family, and we'll bring you some food, you know, in the meantime. So, with no choice, Pat does that with his family. Um, but Pat is constantly looking up from, you know, the ocean and everything and from his – from his uh, where they're eating and everything to try to figure out like what just necessitated that move for them. Uh, So he finally looks up, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes later and sees that Michael Jordan now is standing kind of in the balcony area of where he just left. And so it was essentially Michael Jordan knocking him literally from the top perch of the hotel and this resort. Um, And I just thought it was a really good way to kind of get into the idea of how Michael oversaw everything that happened during that era and that you really had to go through him. To try to you know to kind of claim supremacy at
1: the time, and but then when Michael retired that summer, then ninety three, ninety four, that was the time that was it was one of the most famous years in basketball in terms of without Jordan, the fact that they the Knicks make the playoffs. You have the Spike Lee game with Reggie Mer- Miller arguing with Spike Lee. You uh, you have the uh, the Hugh Hollins foul where they beat the Bulls. They finally beat the Bulls in the playoffs with a surprising foul. Right. And they talk about the last dance, and then you go to the Rockets, the final series against Elijah one. This is the chance the Knicks are going to win the title. You have the O.J. game when O.J. was on the chase during the game when the Knicks were playing in the finals when everybody's sort of following the O.J. chase. And then game seven, John Starks missing, I think he ended up two for 18. Your star shooter couldn't shoot at all uh, and losing finally. It was like the high watermark of the Knicks is that game seven to lose to the Houston Rockets.
2: Exactly. And I mean, I I think there's something to be said for the fact that um, the, the Knicks felt like they, I mean, twice really in two years, 93, we were talking about Charles Smith and then 94, I think is the one that really, really should hurt. Some people mention 93 as being the the missed opportunity and it probably was a little bit, but even if they win that game in the Charles Smith game, they've got to then beat Michael one more time. And those two opportunities to try to advance past them, then they've got to beat a Phoenix team that won the West, you know, and had a better record than they did. Um, You know, during that season, so I don't think it's a given that they win that series. The Bulls did win that series against them, but they, you know, they had a tough time doing it as well. It was not an easy, you know, just kind of rollover sort of process to beat them. So, to me, '94 is the year where they clearly, clearly missed an opportunity. They they go to game six, and you know, they they win from the momentum uh, in game five where they win the OJ game. Game six comes along, they've got. An opportunity down two with five and a half seconds left. And John Starks has made six shots in a row. He's on fire. You know, he's making up for a really ineffective Patrick Ewing against Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, Starks takes a pick and roll with with Ewing and gets what he thinks is an open shot or will be an open shot because he got a pick from Ewing. And Hakeem Olajuwon's having to come over from basically the middle of the floor to try to block a shot. You know, this is a two-time reigning defensive player of the year in Hakeem who gets just enough of maybe a fingernail on Starks' shot to change the trajectory of it. Again, what Starks thought would be an open shot, and it wasn't. So the shot gets blocked as the clock expires. The Knicks lose by two when Starks had taken a three that would have won the game for them if it had gone down. And again, he'd made six shots in a row, so he had all the confidence in the world that the shot was going in. So he doesn't get it. And then, what I think was kind of unbeknownst to everybody for the most part, and, and I think the book sheds light on this, um, Starks essentially develops insomnia for the next three nights, from Sunday night to Wednesday when they play the game seven. And they're playing in Houston. Both of those games were in Houston. This was at a time where the series setup was 2 3 2. So the Knicks had played all three of their home games already by this point. So they lose game six in Houston. Houston players get to sleep in their own beds for the next three nights. The Knicks are in a hotel to the point where they feel handcuffed. They can't even look at TV and watch TV and scramble through the TV channels to find something to watch because every channel essentially has something on about the Rockets still being alive in the series. So they're restless and they have nothing to really do um, other than prepare for practice. And Starks can't sleep. He's just staring at a ceiling all night. Um, so he's struggling with this in a way that he normally doesn't. He normally can just kind of go from one play to the next, one game to the next, He really struggles with this. They get to game seven, he hasn't slept. He is making horrible mistakes on defense, just inattentive on certain things. Um, His shooting is completely, completely off. He's like, you know, shots are banging off the backboard before they hit the rim, uh, just completely off by a number of feet with these shotty takes. So he starts the game one for 13, and it starts to raise the question of like, okay, we realize that Starks is the reason we're here because Ewing had been off. Starks had basically become the number one option. He had had three games in a row where he had double-digit fourth quarters to really keep them or win them the game. Uh, He'd shot 50% from games two to six and 45% from three over those games, Uh, was averaging 21 points and seven assists per game from games two to six. So, you know, they had relied on him heavily, but now it's at a point where he's one for 13 and everybody's wondering, are you going to pull him? You have to do something. You can't just let him keep shooting you out of the game because the Knicks are down by three, down by four, down by six at most. Um, it's a winnable game other than Starks just kind of shooting and having the worst game of his life, basically. Um, so the Rockets are among the people most concerned about whether uh, Riley is going to pull Starks out in particular because Rolando Blackman is one of the possible people that he could bring off the bench to replace Starks with. And Rolando has killed the Rockets over time. He used to be a Maverick. He's the Mavericks leading scorer of all time at that point in his career He was a four-time All-Star. They had never had a real clear answer for how to guard him. Now, granted, this is an older Rolando Blackman, but he's certainly an option in the Rockets. Scott Brooks told me, he said, we were petrified that they were going to bring Rolando off the bench. We figured that was what would happen. Uh, Rolando's highest career scoring average against any team was against those Rockets. So that's the thought, and people are starting to wonder, is that an option that Riley's going to use? But the backstory, again, that people didn't know, and I think even until this book didn't know, is that Pat Riley had gotten in an argument with Rolando Blackman about two and a half weeks before that as the team closed out the series against the Pacers. The Knicks are in a great mood, and they are you know, all about to take part in their first NBA Finals. None of them have ever won one before, and I don't think any of them have been to an NBA Finals before. Um, so Rolando ends up asking Pat Riley in front of the whole team, can we bring our wives to Houston for the Finals? And Pat says no, just a flat no. And then he, when he gets that answer and gets no explanation for it, he says, Pat, I'm not understanding here. You know, like, this is a team of really professional guys. This has been a really long season for us. It's been a really long postseason for us. Um, You know, they'd played two back to back seven game series. And he was like, I don't understand. Like, our our wives hold down our households for us. This is a huge crowning achievement for us. They want to celebrate this with us, too. And we want them to celebrate it with us. So, Why are you saying no? Like, why can't they come with us? They're not going to be a distraction. And Pat says no. And, and, you know, he was almost frustrated or was frustrated with the idea that Rolando would even question him about why um, a second time, certainly a second time. So at that point, uh, you know, Pat is angry that Rolando's questioned him in front of the team. Pat makes a call to the team president and basically says, after all this happens, I need you to back me up on this, that the wives shouldn't be able to come. It'll be a distraction. Um, because this is outside of what we do during the normal season. So that was that. Um, wives didn't come, but also Pat was frustrated with Rolando for having asked that question in front of the team and then having challenged him in front of the team a second time. And so you have Doc Rivers, you've got Derek Harper, you've got Charles Oakley, and you have Rolando himself that have all kind of wondered deep down whether that had something to do with why um, Rolando never got into the series or never got into that game in game seven, despite the fact that he was a natural sort of guy that could have replaced Starks there. Um, so who knows? You know, I asked Pat a couple times. Um, I, I asked for him to speak to me for the book. And I also laid out that question specifically. He didn't take the bait on it, but he has written handwritten letters to Rolando over the years explaining um essentially that he wishes that he'd made a different decision there and that Rolando should have gotten into the game he's called it the biggest mistake he's ever made coaching um but Rolando has never written back to those letters from Pat
1: (laughs) wow and your book I mean we've only touched you know thank you so much Chris for coming on but we've only touched part of it because then we have the whole Van Gundy years and the fact that how how Riley ended up leaving and the Don Nelson so you cover the following you know those other years in the book so it's a I love your book. I love the stories. I love the anecdotes. I mean, that's what I think is so cool about the book. You bring up things that, as much as this topic I think people have covered, you bring up stories that no one's ever heard before. So I really appreciate you writing uh, writing the book called Blood in the Garden, the flagrant history of the 90s New York Knicks. So thank you again for coming on Iron Sports and talking about the Knicks.
2: No problem at all. Thank you so much, Ira, for having me.
1: Really great stuff there uh, from
0: from Chris. it's like painful to hear some of these stories as you know someone who was a Knicks fan then but awesome in-depth analysis and you said this was a great book
1: yeah I mean that's what I mean it's the it's like a story of just it's tragedy it's Shakespearean tragedy in terms (laughs) of the Knicks that they were trying to battle Jordan they were the foil for Jordan all these years the chances and it wasn't like you know they some of these years they had a better record than the Bulls and they couldn't get past Jordan And the year that Jordan is out they they get through the, the the Pacers they get to the finals. They have the whole OJ thing, where the the guard and he writes in the book that almost everybody. Remember, there's no cell phones back then. Everyone yeah. went up to the concourses. They're all watching OJ. No one's paying attention to the <laughs> game in the middle of the NBA. The finals. They finally got to, and then they had. They're up three two going into Houston. Gonna have this big parade, Canyon of Heroes. Finally, Ewing's gonna win the title, and then they lose because Starks keeps shooting, shooting, shooting. So it's it was just if people talk about that. These games. I mean, that's the Knicks have played thousands of basketball games. I think that 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 year those games and the charles smith game just keeps being brought up again and again and again absolutely what are we doing this week um honda classic all week and so we're excited we'll see what happens i'm excited to get out there to honda have a full field and uh i'm I really you know they put a lot of work into this it's a local event and hopefully we'll have another great tournament we
0: are out of time on behalf of ira i'm mike let's talk next monday night iron sports